I'm Hannah, and you are listening to Terror Australis Chronicles, a series where we deep dive into the Eurocentric vision of a southern land, from its conception to modern history. Welcome to Terror Australis Chronicles, Episode 1, Perceiving the Antipods. In this episode, we will travel back to antiquity, where we will deep dive into the lives of some of the great Greek philosophers to try to lift the shroud on who first perceived the idea of a southern land. We will look at what scientific beliefs were necessary for the Greek philosophers to conceive the idea of a southern land, and why it is so hard to pinpoint which philosopher first thought of this concept. So buckle up and get your notebooks out class, because this is not the sort of stuff you were taught in school. Terra Australis Chronicles is recorded on Australian Aboriginal land and acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we work and live, giving respect to the Elders past, present and future. You may have already heard of terms such as Terra Australis Incognita, Terra Australis Ignota and Megalentia that were used to place the unknown southern land on maps. But before this term was commonly used, the ancient Greek philosophers referred to the southern land as the antipods, which purely translates to the opposite of something. We can already see how easily this could result in a lot of mistranslation from historians making us unsure who first conceived the idea of a southern land. While many historians may claim that it was a particular philosopher, this was due to placing too much meaning in translated words such as the antipods in order to find information to serve their own purposes. I'm going to be honest, when I first thought of doing a series on Terra Australis, the easiest starting point for me would have been the Dutch exploration of the Australian Western and Tasmanian coast. But that didn't account for how the idea of a southern land was first conceived by Europeans. I rely heavily on reading the works of others to connect the dots. Finding Avon Judd Stallard's thesis on antipods to Terra Australis was a game changer for this series. He stated that in order for Europeans to perceive a southern land, they must first hold belief in a spherical globe. So two big things needed to happen in order for the idea of a southern land to evolve during the time of antiquity. Firstly, there needed to be a shift in the perception of the earth from being either flat, a cylinder, a bowl or a cube into a sphere. Secondly, there had to be an understanding of a zonal theory of climate that allowed for people to theorise these hypothesised areas of the Earth as being inhabitable. While it is evident that this was a belief held by many Greek philosophers, who first conceived this idea? While it would be easy to do a quick Google search or hop onto Wikipedia and claim that it was Aristotle, no, Plato. Or was it Socrates? Wait, maybe it was Pythagoras all along. It has become clear 
the historians and those who have previously sought this information have a bit of a hard-on for these guys. So, we are going to trudge through the murky timeline of the main contenders, analysing some of their work and historical interpretations. But firstly, what do we know? We know that within this timeline, there were three known lands made up of Asia, Africa and Europe. These were known as the Oikumeni, but in terms to the regions of the southern land, Stallard raises the question, why would people construct and then choose to passionately believe in something that they cannot know exist? I would like to apologise for any mispronunciations of what's to come. Antipod was a term used for dwellers beyond these lands, which were broken down to the Antoikoi, opposite of the Okumini, Antichthenes, on opposite side of the earth, and Puroikoi, around from the Oikumini. Which brings us to our earliest contender, Anaximander. Anaximander inhabited the ancient Greek city of Miletus, presently known as Turkey, between 610 and 546 BC, over 2,600 years ago. Now you might consider him as one of the great granddaddies of the philosophers, with Tyler's being his teacher. It is claimed that he was the first philosopher to look into cosmology. He was known for making maps of the known world while questioning Earth's relationship to the sun, the moon and the stars. The early scholar Hippolytus, whom lived between 170 to 236 AD, saw him as one of the earliest philosophers to regard the idea of an antipodal landmass, whereby he said, Anaximander asserted that there is an eternal motion by the agency of which it happens, that the heavens are generated, but that the earth is poised aloft, upheld by nothing, continuing on account of its equal distance from all the heavens' bodies, and that the figure of it is curved, circular, similar to a column of a stone, and one of the surfaces we tread upon but the other is opposite. In this passage, we can assume that Anaximander was the first known philosopher to believe that the earth stood on its own, not being held up by anything, while considering its relation to the cosmos. The use of the word circular cannot simply be attributed to the thought of a sphere. While Diogenes stated in his writings that Anaximander modelled the earth as a globe, Others believed that he saw it as a disc or a cylinder, as said in this passage, similar to a column of a stone. While his use of the word opposite has most likely been translated from the word antipod, it is purely used in a geometrical sense when describing a shape, not the idea of opposing landmass. None of his works survive today and most of his theories are known through the later works of other philosophers such as Aristotle. While it is known that he may have been the first philosopher to construct a model of the cosmos with the earth at the centre, 
It's thought that he may have actually seen the stars, moon and the sun encircling the earth more as a belt. For our next challenger, we have Pythagoras of Samos. Living between 570 and 495 BC. While he did spend his early years on the island of Samos off the coast of Turkey, most of his works were not done until his 40s where he lived in the city of Croton in southern Italy. Diogenes when regarding Pythagoras stated, We are told he was the first to call the heavens the universe and the earth spherical. Though Theophrastus says that it was Permenides and Zeno that it was Hesoid. Pythagoras became a bit of a glorified deity of philosophers, sort of like the influences of today. Many of his known works have actually been recognized as the ideas of others that were later prescribed to him by historians in early AD. Works such as the Pythagorean theorem that we were taught at school were actually used by Babylonians 1,000 years before his time, and his cosmological works have later been found to be the later works of philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle. Many of his tenets were written by later philosophers that idealised him as a bit of a celebrity of his time. These guys were known as the Neo-Pythagoreans. Alexander Polyhistor a Greek scholar, historian and geographer that lived between 105 and 35 BC, whom was imprisoned as a slave by the Romans during the Mithridatic War, was proclaimed to have written a number of Pythagoras's tenets, as many later Neopythagoreans did. Diogenes believes that Alexander wrote the passage of Pythagoras that stated, a universe animate, intelligent, spherical, with the earth at its centre, the earth itself too being spherical and inhabited round about. There are also antipods, and our down is there up. While Aristotle's work on the heavens comments on a Pythagorean view regarding the spherical earth, there is no information on which Pythagorean conceived this and what the view exactly was. These tenets more inform us that the thought of a spherical earth and the antipods was already established by both Aristotle and Alexander's time, not the words of Pythagoras himself. In fact, according to Stanford University, his fame during his time was due to his work on the fate of the soul after death, as a wonder worker, and being the founder of a strict way of life that included dietary restrictions, religious rituals and rigorous self-discipline. So you could say he was more of a spiritual guru of his time. So now we must move on to Parmenides, living in 5th century BC. Now remember when I said two concepts had to come into fruition to think of the concept of a southern land? So far we have been searching for the concept of a spherical earth. But with Parmenides, we are looking at a much-needed theory of climate. It is assumed that Parmenides was the one that invented the theory of zonal division. I absolutely hate timelines without birth dates, so while his exact birth date is unknown, there are two historical guesses. 515 BC, provided as an estimate due to Plato's work Parmenides 
where he appears as 65 years old with a young Socrates, and 540 BC, estimated by Diogenes, due to an account that Parmenides was flourishing at the age of 40 during the 69th Olympiad. Parmenides was known to write one poem, later titled On Nature, a common title provided to pre-Socratic works. The poem no longer exists in its entirety. While it is assumed that the original may have extended to 800 verses, an estimated 160 fragments survives today, through the works of others such as Plato and Aristotle, where the fragments were quoted. Many historians, including Alfred Hayat, attribute him to inventing the theory of zonal division, though modified in later years by Aristotle and Posidonius. The zonal division divided the world into five parts. These parts included two frigid zones, known as the poles, at either end of the earth that laid uninhabitable due to the cold, a central zone of intolerable heat that could not be crossed, and two temperate zones on each hemisphere, both inhabitable by humans. This zonal theory was attractive to many philosophers, as it could be later used to conceive of an unknown southern land. Due to what survives of his poem, Parmenides is thought to be the grandfather of metaphysics, a branch of philosophy that deals with the first principles of things such as being, knowing, identity, time and space. However, the fact that his original poem is no longer in existence and that fragments only exist through rewritings and translations causes discussion concerning reliability when determining Parmenides' actual beliefs, especially when philosophers such as Plato have been known for writing their own beliefs into the words of others. So at this point you are probably thinking, are we going to find any answers? Well, we know that there is no evidence regarding the idea of a spherical Earth or the antipods before the time of Socrates and Plato. So now you guessed it, we're up to the one and only Socrates. Socrates was an Athenian philosopher living between 469 and 399 BC. He is better known for the Socratic method or method of the rhetoric where rather than answering questions, you ask questions of others, building on until the subject reaches their own understanding. As a seeker of knowledge, he asked these questions of common folk and the elite alike. He was known for walking around barefoot and unwashed. It should be stated that this was during the Golden Age of Greece and at a time where they really valued beauty so this was not considered in any way normal behaviour. I'm kind of sorry but not sorry as I really need to go slightly off topic here because this guy is a badass. That's right, Socrates was a bit of a punk, a free thinker. He didn't always do what he was told. In 406 BC, he was drafted to become a member of the Democratic Assembly. He was the only man that voted against Greek soldiers being sentenced to death for the crime of failing to retrieve dead soldiers from the Spartans, and later refused to take part in the arrest of another citizen. 
These incidences were noted as an act of civil disobedience. It wasn't until 399 BC he was arrested for failing to honour the gods and corrupting the youth. He chose to defend himself in court, but rather than deny the accusations, he stated that he provided an important service to the community by continuously questioning the status quo. He also stated that if he did commit these acts, it was purely because he did not know what he was doing. So, rather than be punished, he should be taught otherwise. He was found guilty, but during this time you could propose your own punishment, such as exile over death. He proposed his punishment should be that he was honoured by the city for his contribution to their enlightenment and paid for their services. He was sentenced to death by a mixture of hemlock and poison. Plato, in his work Phaedo, talked of Socrates' death, stating, Socrates drank the hemlock mixture without hesitation. Numbness slowly crept into his body until it reached his heart. Shortly before his final breath, Socrates described his death as a release of the soul from the body. Alas, the only writings of him regarding an antipodal southern land are through Plato and argued through historians to be the thoughts of his student rather than his own. It is actually thought that Socrates never did any writing himself. So as we move on to our next contenders, things start to get a bit clearer and a bit less murky. From this point, many of these philosophers' works still survive to this day. While there is still a problem in knowing if the works were translated correctly due to many of these works being translated during the medieval times, a problem that we'll delve further into next episode, this was also a time where the Greek language was no longer being as widely used. There was also the issue of works being broken up by those on wisdom pilgrimages or pages being shuffled during translation. Despite all of this, it was still easier to acknowledge what these philosophies were, with some of their complete works still available. We will now continue with Socrates' student himself, Plato. Plato was again an Athenian philosopher, living between 428 and 347 BC. He was a student of Socrates and is the first of the Greek philosophers that we can actually attribute to holding the belief of a spherical globe. In his work Phaedo, there is a passage that states, Well then, my friend, in the first place it is said that the earth, viewed from above, resembles those balls made of twelve pieces of leather in its variegation and in its division into different colours, of which our colours the ones the painters use, are as it were, samples. Historians have argued whether he means that the earth is viewed as a ball or disc, such as J.S. Morrison in his book The Shape of the Earth, where he notes, The image of the ball of 12 pieces of leather is introduced in such a way as to illustrate the variegation in colour of this upper surface, not its spherical shape. This, in my opinion, doesn't make any sense. It is known that there were many balls created by sewing strips of leather together during ancient times, and ball games were played in Rome and Greece. 
smaller balls were filled with items such as feathers and larger balls had a bladder filled with air, similar to the modern day football or soccer ball, depending on where you live. So Morrison's idea that Plato was referring to a disc instead of a ball just doesn't really add up. I believe that he is putting too much of a meaning on the word variegation rather than looking at the whole passage for meaning. In his work Fido, Plato writes as Socrates whom refers to multiple other worlds. But in reading this work completely, the world below he is often referring to has no bearing with the idea of an antipodal landmass or race, but that of the underworld, with Plato referring more so to the philosophy of what happens to the soul after death and the ideas of reincarnation. However, as the story does progress, Socrates mentions that the earth is covered in other landmasses. Though, rather than refer to any antipodal landmass, he refers to the thought that people dwell in craters and that there are lands above these craters where people live longer and healthier lives. At one point in Plato's work, Socrates mentions a river the size of the Mediterranean Sea that is made up of fire wrapping around the centre of the earth. The third river passes out between the two and near the place of outlet pours into a vast region of fire and forms a lake larger than the Mediterranean Sea, boiling with water and mud and proceeding muddy and turbide and winding about the earth. While this river could be seen as a reference to Parmenides' central temporal zone or the torrid zone, the river is mentioned after referring to the journey of human and animal souls after death. Thus, it could still be referring to the journey to the underworld. Many philosophical works and ideas were actually written in the form of poems, stories and dreams at this time. So it is sometimes hard to discern the complete philosophical view behind the stories and concepts, leaving it widely up to interpretation. Despite the lack of antipodal landmass in Phaedo, Plato was known by Diogenes as being the first person to write of the antipods as a philosophical discussion. In his work Timaeus, there is a passage that has been translated to If a man were actually to walk round and round the body, he would repeatedly stand on his own antipods and call the same point on its surface above and below. For the whole being spherical, as we said just now, there is no sense in speaking of one region as above, another below. While there is no evidence that the idea of a spherical globe or of the antipods originated from Plato or his teacher Socrates, evidence from his works points to the belief of a spherical earth and that the southern hemisphere could hold land with the possibility of man. Our timeline has finally reached the point of Aristotle. As I have mentioned before, he is the philosopher largely accredited to the idea of a spherical globe. Now, when I say this, I'm not really talking from the perspective of a historian, more so from the case of doing a Google search and the articles that pop up. Aristotle lived between 384 and 322 BC. He was 
Born in Stagira, also pronounced as Stagira, but moved to Athens at the age of 17, as it was seen as the educational hub of Greece, where he trained under Plato. So it's not surprising to see that he sometimes had similar views. However, Aristotle was his own man and was denied the job as director of Plato's school after his death due to not following his philosophies to a T. Aristotle produced over 200 works, with only 32 still remaining to this day. While many articles may attribute to Aristotle conceiving the idea of the earth was spherical, due to his work being popularised, we already know that by this time the idea was already well established. In Aristotle's work on the heavens, he wrote, Some think it's spherical, others flat and shaped like a drum. These later adduce as evidence the fact that the sun at its setting and rising shows a straight line instead of a curved line where it cuts off by the horizon. Whereas, were the earth spherical, the line of section would necessarily be curved. They fail to take into consideration either the distance of the sun from the earth or the size of the earth's circumference and the appearance of straightness which it naturally presents when seen on the surface of an apparently small circle a great distance away. In Aristotle's Meteorologica, he also wrote of his prospective land in the southern hemisphere. There must be a region which bears to the other pole the same relation as that which we inhabit bears to our pole. It is clear that this region will be analogous to ours in the disposition of wind as well as in other respects. Thus, just as we have a north wind here, so they have a similar wind which blows from their pole and which cannot possibly reach us. It should be noted that when reading this passage, while Aristotle alludes to people through the word they, this does not actually show a belief in men living on this land of opposite. It was common practice during this time of antiquity to refer to unknown spaces as inhabited land. This simply just means that Aristotle viewed this land as conceptually able to be inhabited. Crates of Malos is our next person of interest. Crates lived between 180 and 150 BC. He was a librarian of the Greek city of Pergamum. While no original works of Crates survive today, through works such as The Geography of Strabo, we know that Crates posited an antipods as well as a second southern landmass and possibly a second northern landmass, with Strabo saying, Crates says that the torrid zone is occupied by Oceanus and that on both sides of this zone are the temperate zones, the one being on our side while the other is on the other side. Crates thinks we must conceive that on the other side of Oceanus also there are certain Ethiopians, the most remote of the other group of people in the temperate zone, since they dwell on the shores of this same Oceanus and that they are in two groups and are sundered in twain by Oceanus. Many historians have drawn spherical globes indicating landmasses of equal size mirroring each other on each hemisphere, regarded as Crate's globe. 
This has been due to a theory that the Greeks believed in a principle of symmetry. Stallard claims that this theory cannot be backed and as such could be inaccurate. While the Greeks did prescribe to many principles of ordering such as beauty, perfection and honour, there is no evidence to the theory of symmetry. However, many historians still believe the ancient Greeks adhered to this theory. Stella believes that geographical drawings of Crate's world, none of which drawn by Crates himself, could be widely inaccurate as they are based not only of Crates' translation but include this theory. Personally, I'm not going to comment on this one, at least not until we cover our next person, Geminus. Geminus of Rhodes was born in the 1st century BC. I tried to work out an estimated birth date with this guy, believe me, but his estimated birth dates range over 100 years apart. While some believe he may have been taught by Posidonius, the lack of birth date and other information to verify this makes it impossible to be sure. In fact, we don't even know if Geminus was born or worked in Rhodes. He mainly worked on astrology and Rhodes was the hub for astrological work at this time. As such, a lot of his books referred to the mountains in Rhodes, but we cannot actually be sure if he lived there and was not just using them as references to his work. In his work Introduction to Phenomena, he provided detail of the potential people of the globe, writing... Of those who dwell on earth, some are called Sinoikoi, some Peroikoi, some Antoikoi, and some Antipods. Sinoikoi are those who dwell around the same place in the same zone as we do. Peroikoi are those who dwell in the same zone but around the circle. Antoikoi are those who dwell in the southern zone in the same hemisphere. Antipods are those who dwell in the southern zone in the other hemisphere, lying on the same diameter as our oikumeni, which is why they have been called with feet opposite. When we speak of the southern zone and those dwelling in it, as well as the so-called antipods in it, we should be understood in this way that we have received no account of the southern zone nor whether people live in it, but rather that because the whole spherical construction and shape of the earth and the path of the sun between the tropics there exists a certain other zone, lying towards the south and having the same temperate character as the northern zone in which we live. In the same way we speak of the antipods not in the sense that people positively dwell diametrically opposite us, but rather that there is on earth a certain habitable place diametrically opposite us. Cicero thought of the, an antipodal landmass in more of a political sense. Romans conquered the Greek peninsula in 146 BC. However, they didn't take definitive control until after the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Cicero lived between 106 and 43 BC. He was a lawyer, politician and philosopher. He saw the idea of the antipods as a metaphor for people that stand beyond the reach of a Roman rule. 
and the limited nature of the empire's reach. In his work Dream of Scipio, he states, Those who inhabit the earth are not only divided so that nothing can pass between them from one group to another, but some stand obliquely, some transversely, and some even directly opposite to you. From these, you can certainly expect no glory. Of those, the two furthest apart from each other, supported at each end by the very poles of the heavens you see stiffened with frost. That the middle one, however, the biggest you see, burned with the heat of the sun. Two belts are habitable. Those who dwell in the southern one press their feet against you and have nothing to do with your people. And this one, lying to the north, which you inhabit, look what a meagre portion has anything to do with you. In his writing Academia, Cicero refers to the empiric school, describing people with feet opposite. Your school even says that there are people opposite to us, on the contrary side of the earth, standing with the soles of their feet turned in the opposite direction to ours, whom you call antipods. Cicero faced a number of political exiles over his time. He was killed after the death of Caesar by Mark Antony, despite delivering a series of speeches denouncing him as a public enemy. He was found by Antony's soldiers, and his head and right hand were cut off and brought back to Rome for display as punishment for his writings and speeches. Pomponius Mela was an early pioneer of geography, though Encyclopedia.com states that his works were unscientific nor mathematical. He lived around 1st century AD, though little is truly known of him besides through his work De Choreographia, that was written around 43 AD. He resided in the Roman city of Tingenterra in southern Spain. Mella believed in Parmenides and Crate's zonal theory, where the earth was divided into five zones. In Pomponius Mella's description of the world, he refers to the southern hemisphere, according to Crate's Antichthenes, referring to a land opposite to the Oikumene. He wrote, The remaining two habitable zones have the same annual seasons, but not at the same time, the Antichthenes inhabit one, we the other. Another member of antiquity that played a large role in later antipodal theories when rediscovered in the medieval times was Ptolemy. Ptolemy lived in the then Roman city of Alexandria in Egypt between 100 and 170 AD. He was a mathematician, astronomer and geographer. He completed a number of books in his fields, including Geographia. He also created a map of the world, where he was the first to subdivide Europe, Africa and Asia into regions that were calculated by latitude and longitude, while also thinking about how to draw a map in a spherical globe. Ptolemy was aware of his lack of knowledge and noted that his maps were incomplete filled with areas yet to be found or explored that would require later revisions. 
These surrounding areas he coined as terra incognita, land unknown. He believed that the world was one giant continent of habitable land bound not only by ocean but also landlocked by unknown land. He also believed in a theory of balance, meaning all of the land on the northern hemisphere needed to be connected to a large continent on the southern hemisphere. Ptolemy envisioned that Africa and Asia were landlocked with the Indian Ocean enclosed between them and this large southern landmass. This allowed for Ptolemy's theory that the antipods were connected to the Oikumene by the southern, eastern and northern borders, rather than being unreachable through the Torrid Zone. So we have now come to the end of our first episode. As you have come to realize, there is no simple way to determine which philosopher first conjured the idea of a spherical earth or a theory of climate that in turn led to the belief of the antipods. Unfortunately, too many works have been lost over time and there are probably many philosophers we no longer know of. I still hope that this episode has been enjoyable and led to information that you were yet to know on early Europeans' thoughts of a southern land. The ancient Greeks constantly questioned the world around them. This led to some enlightened hypotheses and philosophies on how the world worked. I would really appreciate if you would like to to provide some feedback through at Terrastralis Chronicles on Instagram. As I earlier stated, this is not my usual forte of study. I usually study in modern history and as such this episode took a while to compile with small amounts of information sprinkled through various sources. So I apologize for any feelings of disjointedness along the way. If you would like to view the sources for any further readings on what was discussed today, I encourage you to go to my blog www.terrastralischronicles.com. <laughs>